And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, this is a show I've probably been working on the longest because I think the thought first occurred to me when I was in freshman biology and we got to the fungus section where we kind of went into kingdom fungi. And I was introduced to these organisms and they they just, you know, as you can tell by the topics of the show, I'm into kind of weird things. And and fungus fit into that category because they're not plants, but they're kind of like plants. They're not bacteria, but they're kind of bacteria. They're not... They're not animals, obviously, um, but they're, they're kind of they're, they're an overlap. If you look at a Venn diagram, they're kind of in the middle of all these things because they exhibit characteristics of all of them. And they're very strange and bizarre and fascinating and uh, extremely intriguing. And the ones you kind of you know first get acquainted with are the molds, the things that kind of grow almost seemingly spontaneously on fruit and they get furry and green and you know, it's a mess. And I remember the teacher um, at the time, he gave extra credit for things if you brought in mold. And I think he regretted that decision as soon as he offered it because I think I brought in three or four things. I remember, you know, eight weeks after we'd kind of gotten past fungi and into plants, I was still bringing in a rotten banana for extra credit because I just loved the way the mold had just kind of gone on there. And But he wondered what my household was like with all this rotting fruit. Why weren't we eating it instead of watching it grow mold? And I also remember at this exact same period of time, I found this book in the library, which now that I played the game Last of Us, it kind of echoes that. But it was basically a world where a scientist created a fungus that kind of, or he created the, um, the capabilities for fungus to grow at an alarming rate. So you had mushrooms that were the size of, you know, skyscrapers or whatever. And it was very much like the, the movie The Last of Us, where the fungus started to infect human beings. And I, remember, I don't remember the name of the book, but it was incredible. So I had this fascination early on with fungus. And, you know, I'm just excited to be doing an episode on this uh, with one of the leading experts in the field. Let's just get right into this. So I'm sitting here with Britt Bunyard, mycology expert, fungus master. Am I, getting, am I missing anything, sir? Not yet. So you are the editor-in-chief, uh, um, chief brain behind fungi magazine and that makes you an expert in fungus correct yes that makes me an expert in fungus oh i think you're an expert in fungus let's get into this i'm going to tell you a secret i love fungus i've always like been completely amazed by just these incredible organisms and i'm gonna tell you a story this is how i got into fungus so i have a a grand i had a grandmother and she did this amazing little thing where she would, whenever she would make food for me, specifically pizzas, so she would do what she's called doctoring it up. So she would take mozzarella cheese and she would put extra cheese on it. Now, as a kid, I hated it because I just wanted to eat and it took forever for her to cut the cheese off. But now as an adult, I really love it. That's a side story. The reason why I'm telling you this story is there were sometimes she would pull out the mozzarella cheese, as old people tend to do, where things sit in their, um, in their refrigerator a little too long and have mold on it. And so she would cut off the mold, 
and they would be, she, oh, it's fine, it's fine, and she would put it on there. And I knew in my heart that it tasted differently. I knew there was something up with it. And it turns out, I found out, and this is, I hope this is not a secret to you, but that the fungus is actually inside the entire cheese already, and it's ready to grow and, and replicate. And so the, the part she cut off is actually just cutting off the reproductive part. It's like castrating the fungus, right? And, and it was still in there. Well, with mozzarella cheese, no, that's not right, actually, believe it or not. What? So what is it, what is it with mozzarella cheese? Yeah, mozzarella cheese is just made from, I make cheese all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm really into cheese in addition to mushrooms. But yeah, mozzarella cheese is just made from uh, mesophilic starter. It's just micro- bacteria, basically. No, I mean, it was moldy. The cheese was moldy. The mold, the, uh, mo- if it was mozzarella and it had mold on it, that was from mold growing on the outside of the cheese and contaminating it, believe it or not. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of cheeses have the mold already throughout it, like brie and cheddars and stuff like that, but not mozzarella, as it turns out. Oh, well, I meant so like... it was actually contaminated. She was cutting off the contamination. There was, there, was no, there was no mold inside the cheese where she didn't cut it off. Really? Yeah. Oh, so mold doesn't grow inside a mozzarella cheese, even if it sits there for a while? Well, I mean, if given enough time, sure, it would grow all the way through it and, and putrefy it. But uh, it's yeah. not like a blue cheese that you start with a block of, like, uh, like a, a cheese curd that then... Um, you know, all cheese starts out the same, basically. Yeah. Um, so blue cheese starts out like as mozzarella cheese, except you're not pulling it to give it that uh, rubbery elasticity. Mm. Um, and then the blue cheese, when it blooms and you can see the blue, the reproductive parts, that's that that fungus is giving it a flavor. But the the, the mold that's on a mozzarella cheese that was actually in your house and contaminated it, it probably was growing on fruit and other things in the fridge and in the house that's a common like penicillium or something sure no that's well so what i would explain to her is that she was just she wasn't cutting off the mold she was just removing the reproductive parts and yeah so so the mozzarella she actually was just cutting she was just cutting off the mold but it was the reproductive parts yeah so she's like i said she's castrating this this, (laughs) this mozzarella cheese but she was insistent that it was fine i knew it wasn't yeah it was totally fine uh (laughs) well i guess i didn't die so that's the good part of it um, so now, now, how did you get into mold and fungus, spores, molds, and fungus, as Egon Spangler said in Ghostbusters? <laughs> Is that, how did you get into it? Um, well, I grew up on a farm in Ohio, mm. and we grew all kinds of stuff, and I was always wandering around in the woods and looking for mushrooms and stuff like that, and uh, we collected morels in the spring, which is one mm. type of a mushroom. And that's very expensive re- type, too. Yeah, and that's, and that's, you know, it's very popular in the Midwest. Everyone goes out looking for morels. And that's really the only mushroom that my family knew. And when I would ask about other mushrooms that I would see at other times of the year in the woods, you know, they didn't seem to know anything about that. And I was interested, so I started getting books and things like that. And I just, the interest just grew. And then when I finally went to college as an undergrad, um, I started out at Kent State University. That's, that's where I got my undergrad degree. And in, I, I was studying biology. And as it turns out, there was a really famous mycologist there who I did a project with and you know he knew every mushroom in the woods and you know all of my other degrees are all having to do with uh, mushrooms and other fungi as well. So, so is it, this is Samuel Mazur? Yeah. I know him. Oh yeah, he worked with um, uh, Alexander Smith. Yeah. The fungi master. Yeah. He's yeah. the one who named everything. Yep, just about, yeah. Smith I think at one time probably had like his name on half of all the species in North America. He, he was at Michigan and he was Super, he's super famous, yeah. yeah. So you're a descendant of this guy, educationally speaking, sure. academically. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about that? That's great. You're That's just, great. this is a big deal, <laughs> and you're just kind of like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. 
Oh, no, no, don't, a... don't let my demeanor. <laughs> no, I, I really think it is a big deal. This is cool. So let's talk about, now let's, let's break down what exactly defines a fungus and how it works. Okay, colloquially, so let's. What is a so you know, like if you found a living creature outside and you mm-hmm. knew it wasn't a human or a bird, what is it? So how mm-hmm. would you decide if it was a plant or a bacterium or a fungus or whatever? Yeah. So uh, fungi, they they are are heterotrophic. They cannot. They're not autotrophic like plants. They cannot make their own food from photosynthesis or chemosynthesis like some bacteria and things like that. They have to. Um, either be a pathogen on a living thing and that's where they get their uh, organic material or they have to rot things so and we're and for that reason we're very similar to them you know we can't make our own food like a plant we have to eat things that mm. that you know that ate other things or that made their own food so they're heterotrophic they their cells have cell walls um, so that would differ from us we have no cell walls plants have cell walls but they're made of cellulose fungi have cell walls made of chitin which is a material kind of like your, our fingernails. It's the and same stuff found in insects, like abso- insect. And absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. In arthropods, so mm. lobster and crabs and insects and their exoskeletons. Squid yep. beaks. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, and again, that sort of belies the uh, close ancestry between fungi and animals. So mm. we, we share a lot of very similar things. Um, so mostly the cell wall thing made of chitin and the fact that they are heterotrophic. Um, their body is usually of a mycelium or a hyphae, which are kind of like long, skinny, hair-like tube, elongate cells, unlike you know our cells or plant cells. So that's that's sort of in a nutshell what they are. So they kind of so the way I remember it from from biology class was you have a spore, which is basically like a little dot um, with all the information that requires to have to replicate the mold, let's say, mm-hmm. and so that lands on something. I, conditions are ideal for this thing to grow, and it kind of expands into the thing in which it is rotting, let's say, mm-hmm. or, or taking the substances away from. Mm-hmm. And it kind of grows, then the hyphae kind of extends, very similarly to like a root of a plant, yes. and it grows into, but as it's extending into it, it's actually dissolving the area around it with enzymes, right? Yes, So, and that's another thing about fungi that's uh, also very similar to animals. You know, so there's five kingdoms of life, bacteria, which are super old and you know all over the planet, and then there's the eukaryote or, or higher organisms. So there's protozoans, which are single-celled, and there's plants, animals, and fungi, and those are the five kingdoms of, of living creatures. So yeah, so another really similar feature between fungi and animals, believe it or not, is how they digest stuff. They, um, unlike bacteria and protozoans that take in their food into their cell and digest it, they digest it. Ex- outside of their body, just like we do. Mm. And usually people are like, um, I think we swallow it and have it in our stomach. Yeah, our stomach is actually outside of our body. You know, it's not inside of our cells. So whereas we have a chamber that's... Oh, you're just blowing people's minds right now, man, because that's a weird concept to wrap your head around. So but I do, what, I, do, I do know what you mean. Yeah, so we have this chamber that seems to be on the inside of us, but it's actually walled off by epithelium. You know, just like the inside of our mouth is it's not like enclosed in our skin. Exactly, but it's outside of the the body. It's outside of our tissues. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So, in fact, we have special things lining the stomach and the intestines and everything to keep stuff there and not get inside of our tissues. Anyways, so the food that we eat goes there, and we excrete enzymes into that cavity to digest the food, and that's what fungi do. So they grow, just as you said, they grow into the substrate that they're they're living in. They excrete outside of their cells enzymes 
to digest whatever that material is, and then they reabsorb it. So again, it's really similar to us. Yeah. If you think about it. And then the network of them is called mycelium. So all these hyphae come out and they branch out like roots. So it's yeah. basically like a root system, but with roots, they're just pushing soil out of the way and then absorbing nutrients. Mm -hmm. And this is actually dissolving the matter in which it's extending into. Yes, sort and, of. And so with, with fungi, you know, a lot of people probably think most fungi rot stuff. And that's somewhat true. A lot of fungi we know about, a lot of mushrooms, you can grow them because uh, you can uh, put material in a box or, or a bag or whatever and, and put the, introduce the fungus there and they'll rot it and make mushrooms and then there, there you go. But, but most fungi probably don't rot stuff. They're either pathogens on other organisms, especially mm. plants, or they're symbiotic living with other organisms. So, and, and where I'm going with this is you're talking about the roots of plants like trees. Everyone's familiar with those. So believe it or not, the roots of trees and probably all plants don't really do a whole lot for the mm. plant other than hold it into the soil. Um, m certainly all trees and probably all plants, actually the roots are covered with different types of fungi that act as the absorptive really root for the root. The, the roots just are kind of like a stem underground and they have to have these different symbiotic partner fungi on the tree roots. And again, that fungus cannot live without that plant because that's where it gets all the stuff from. It's, it seems like if you see a, a bolete or a chanterelle, a lot of people are picking these in the east right now, very popular choice edible mushroom. You can buy them in the markets. You can't grow those because they grow from the roots of trees. It looks like they're coming out of the soil and you pick them, but if you dug down into the soil, they're actually attached to the roots of those trees and they're basically farming the tree and they cannot live without the tree and the tree cannot live without them. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, and the more I like looked into fungus, kind of re, you know, reintroduce my mind to this world, they're kind of like, you know, they're, they're in their own kingdom, obviously they're completely different, but they have this weird overlap where they're kind of like, and if there was an alternate reality, they're like the alternate reality of plants because they kind of do a lot of the same things as plants. They, they're very similar, but they, they don't have, obviously they can't make their own energy. But they're, they're very similar to that and bacteria. So like if bacteria and plants had like a weird kid, it would be like <laughs> fungus, you know what I mean? Like I yeah, feel like there's some connection. And that's how evolution works, you know? That's crazy. So, you know, um, in, in the old days, like when I was a kid, there would be a lot of people arguing against evolution and say, you know, show me where all of the, the transition species are and everything. Well, there everything's a transition species, just mm -hmm. as you're saying. So from the most primitive bacteria to you know, more advanced like us or plants, there's stuff in between that seems almost like a hodgepodge of all of those groups. And of course, yeah. that's exactly what it is, you know, yeah. because these other more, uh, more recent life forms came from these more, more primitive forms. So of course, they have a lot of evolutionary baggage left over from the, the groups that they came from. Yeah, I mean, like the second there were, you know, unicellular organisms, they were already diverging to adapt to the conditions in which were unique to them. Absolutely. So they're already, you know, we're watching it a million years, years down the road where they've already been on this path for a long time. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think people get caught up in like Lucy or like these things that transition, but yeah, everything's in a state of transition. Absolutely. That's an, that's an astute point, doctor. Well, <laughs> well. Nicely done. Hey, um, so, you know, you, you, I'm a, I'm a progeny from, from Sam Mazur and Alexander you're Smith. You're proving it so see, every there you go. second. There you go. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> yeah. You have this knowledge that you're just so casual with, but it's like a sword, <laughs> you know, you're swinging it with, um, extreme proficiency. I'll, I'll be very careful. Yeah. Be careful. Don't want anyone to get hurt. Um, so the other thing that's kind of cool, uh, just in general about these organisms that I think people kind of overlook uh, is that there's this weird constant battle 
this, this nuclear war that happens on a daily basis um, inside the soil where fungus and bacteria and plants are all kind of battling for control. And so a lot of like our antibacterial stuff comes from fungus, which are on a daily basis using those same chemicals to keep the bacteria off of them so that they can grow in that place. And the same thing with bacteria, they have antifungal properties as well. Um, this is amazing, but it's like this nuclear war that happens, you know, every day. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, so uh, definitely, I mean, you, you were talking about the, um, it, was, it was your mom's cheese or your- It was my grandmother's cheese. grandma had the cheese. Yeah. So, you know, the reason why you want to cut mold off of, or throw food out, that's- That's the that, key right there. That's, that's gone <laughs> bad is, uh, for sure there's fungi that would be a flavoring of foods or, or alcohols mm. or whatever, but there's certainly ones that can also produce um, toxins, like mycotoxins. And so why would they produce? So uh, some of the most deadly poisons on the planet are mycotoxins, uh, mm. like aflatoxin, which comes from Aspergillus flavus. This is the most carcinogenic natural substance on the planet. There's no amount that's not carcinogenic, that, that's so small that's not carcinogenic. So why would they produce these hellish toxins? So just as you, as you hit on, these microbes, you know, they don't have the ability to pick up and move or mm. pick up objects and throw at each other. They've, they, they do chemical warfare and uh, try to, to, I guess, give themselves a leg up, um, you know, in the environment where they're feeding. But, and this is, this is what's been the thinking for quite a few decades now, and all the textbooks talk about this. But it turns out this is, it's, this is probably true to some extent, but not totally true. Just recently, like in the last decade, they've been finding a lot of different compounds that are weird antimicrobials and bacteria static and fungal static products of some of these microbes in the soil. Turns out some of these things are probably being made by these microbes for communication, believe it or not. Oh, that's interesting. And they're finding a lot of different bacteria. If you, um, if you or anyone out th uh, listening to this, you know, Google's uh, like uh, borum or sensing or biofilms, this is a, a hot area mm. in science right now. And so it turns out there's, in any, in any situation, your mouth is a good example. There's over 300 species of bacteria in your mouth very few of them can cause any sort of damage to your teeth, to your skin, anything. And in fact, they all seem, most of them seem to have a really tough time just living, but they rely on a few key partners that maybe can cement themselves to your teeth or something like that. Or if it's the ocean, uh, they have the ability to, to sit on the top of the ocean and it, for photosynthesis or whatever. In any case, they start pumping out these compounds and now other things can latch on and start making these rafts and these films. So the film could be on a surface of the water or surface of the plant or soil or on the surface of your teeth. So uh, it turns out a lot of these chemicals that these organisms are, are squirting out into the environment aren't necessarily for poison. They somehow might actually be uh, beneficial in telling others, not of their own kind, mm -hmm. others to get together with them because together they can live much better than any one of them can separately. And so again, this is uh, an area that people are just starting to, to study. But of course, you can imagine there's all sorts of possible uh, ways humans can put that to use for uh, drug therapies against disease, or um, I mean, there's just there's just no limit. Or making fuels, or or breaking down what you know our own waste uh, from from industry or, or whatever. There's, there's just you know no end in sight to what you can put these microbes um, to use doing. That's amazing. I mean, what a peaceful message that they're, they're, you know, they're, they're saying, they're excreting a chemical that's saying like, hey, man, 
Like, let's just all work together. We can get more done together than. Let's just get along. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, you know, it's it's seems very political even at the you know, microbial level. Mm-hmm. We're like, who are you aligning yourself with? Like, what what are the partners you're attracting? Which ones, you know, which guys can kind of complement your abilities? You know, because there's lots of mutualism. There's lots of. Um, you know, synthesis between different uh, animals. And like, this is a way to do that where you're communicating on a molecular level with them. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. I had no idea that this was going on. So there was this um, theory put forth uh, maybe in the 70s or maybe very early 80s. I think it was maybe the 70s called the Gaia hypothesis. Mm -hmm. You know, G-A-I-A, Gaia, or G-I-A-I. Gaia? Yeah. Yeah, so um, anyways, and the, the idea is that everything in nature is connected, you know, the, the tree roots and, and all of this stuff. And, and at the time, you know, when a lot of the um, environmentalist movement was getting started, people took that message and employed it to, you know, if we're polluting this part of the planet, it's going to wreck things. And, so that, and, that was, and that's true, of course, but we're finding more and more that really is true. All of the organisms seem to be really connected in one way or another in the planet. And... Uh, you know, for good or for bad, uh, probably mostly for good. They all seem to be kind of almost symbiotic of others, and and uh, the m- the more people look into this this whole thing, it seems to be more and more true. Just last week, it was announced, and a lot of this stuff is like um, hu- huge stuff that you everyone should have seen, and it was right in front of us, and they didn't. So if you know what lichens are, right? Mm-hmm. These symbiotic organisms that are on the sides of rocks and cliffs and trees gravestones, anywhere where it's a harsh environment that gets sunlight and water. Almost looks like a moss, except it's tougher. Very mm-hmm. much like a moss, but, but definitely tougher. So these are areas that get water at some point, usually right. very infrequently, like maybe not even every year, not right. even a single time every year. So this stuff will sit there sort of in a suspended animation, and then when, when it does get wet, then it starts photosynthesizing and growing. So how does this work? Well, the, the creature that you're looking at looks usually green or blue-green. It's actually a fungus that is farming algae or cyanobacteria, which mm. are photosynthetic bacteria, or both of those. And so anyways, they're all over the planet, super common. And of course, the drier and, and colder parts of the planet, these things are dominant creatures. And they're all around right here in Southern California, too. But anyways, um, everyone's familiar with them. Even if you didn't know what they were, you've seen them. They look like mm-hmm. a moss. So when people have tried to grow them in the lab, they, nev- they never could. You can slice them in half and look at them under the scope. And you can see where the fungal tissue is and where the uh, algae tissue is and everything. You can see that. But why can't we grow these things? They seem like so rudimentary. Well, it turns out in a discovery just published last year, is although people had studied these for hundreds of years, there was another type of fungus apparently present that's like all but invisible in the tissues, and this one is actually the key one. So most of hmm. the most of the fungal material in lichens is an ascomycete type fungus, and these are ascomycetes are uh, like yeasts and morels and, and these type, these sorts of um, fungi. Uh, the mushrooms that most people would see growing on a lawn or on your pizza with the cheese that was sure. moldy and all that, those are basidiomycetes, and they're a fairly different type of a fungus. Well, anyways, the invisible partner that seems to be key to this lichen is the uh, this weird uh, a weird basidiomycete that is like all but invisible, but it's sort of behind the scenes in amongst the tissues. The there. puppet master. It's really the puppet master. Yeah, and so I even did a talk on on uh, puppet masters in the environment uh, a couple years ago, and it had to do with different weird symbiotic fungi that are the ones calling the shots 
with the plants and they're like these mycorrhizal types that grow on the roots of trees and although you can't really see a lot of them they're the ones that seem to lord over the planet and determine which plants can grow where and all of this sort of stuff so the crowd of course thought it was great because they're all there to hear about mushrooms i said and you know basically in the last slide um, now you're going to learn who the real puppet master is because they're right. like oh I, I thought it was the fungus i'm like no it turns out all these fungi that are mycorrhizal seem to have in their cells these bacteria that live in their cells and they're the ones that control the fungus so again if you come back in a hundred years and do an interview with someone they'll say there was something inside the bacterium that was inside the fungus that was inside the tree root that right. was the puppet master so. that's crazy it just keeps going down down into yeah. this rabbit hole yeah that, it's pretty nuts I, I mean it's crazy to me how 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 much that they how symbiotic bacteria and fungus fungi really are fungi i can never say that word correctly how 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 they just work together on almost every level. It is pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about mushrooms, that's what most people think of when they think of fungi. Yeah. But in actuality, and to go back to my alternative, real alternative reality theory behind fungus, is that you know the the mushroom itself is like almost like the flower mm -hmm. of a fungus. It's the it's the reproductive you know fruiting body of it. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, it it does replicate other flowers in nature, which we'll we'll talk about in a second. I'm gonna let you get your Get your mitts into that one. So <laughs> now let's talk about some. We've got kind of a basis for what what f fungi are. Let's talk about some of the cool the the cooler ones. Some yeah. of the, the superstars. All right. Let's. There's a lot let's, of cool ones out there. What are possibly the most controversial and most interesting mushrooms, which is the amanita. Amen, I always say amanita. Is it amanita? How do you pronounce it? Amanita. Tomato, tomato kind of thing. Amanita. 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 I so like that. So that's the, the the thing with the, the the scientific names is really tough, especially for fungi, because most groups of organisms, the scientific name comes from Latin, you know, which we Americans don't pronounce the right way to begin with. But it's true. A lot of fungal names are not just Latin, but they're also from Greek. So fungi are kind of different mm. that way. So uh, uh, most American, most North Americans either say Amanita or Amanita. I say Amanita, but truly neither one's actually correct. Oh, like good. So I can kind of say whatever say incorrect what word. Okay. I'm yeah. going to say Amanita. Yeah. Uh, so now these things, most of the members of, is it a family or is that a, is it an the or? Family the family is Amanita. Is, uh, the family is Amanitaceae uh -huh. and the genus is Amanita or Got it. Amanita. And there's another uh, genera in there too in the same family. Got it. I mean, it is a genus. That's a, that's a genus. Okay. Yeah. So now these all produce, for the most part, neurotoxins, essentially, right? The bulk of them do. Or uh, no? Is that not correct? Not really, no. Okay. So the, the most notable ones, so for people that collect wild mushrooms, anything that looks like an amanita or amanita, anything that looks remotely like that, people would usually just say out of hand, oh, don't bother eating that because that, that could be an amanita and everybody knows they're dangerous. And, well, it turns out, there's not really that many poisonous ones. The ones that are poisonous end up killing, you know, 90% of the mushroom deaths every year on Earth are from this group, so they're not to be sneezed at. But at the same time, more species of Amanita are collected as food around the world than any other genus around the world. So, you know, wow. there's, there's lots of bowl eats and chanterelles and stuff, and everybody collects them, and morels. 90% a big number. Yes. Now, does that tie into the fact that also these are the most collected mushroom? Uh, no. Uh, people mistake them from a lot of other things that lo they look pretty similar to, you okay. know, and, and they're, they're, they're big showy mushrooms. Uh, I think a lot of people are used to things in nature that are poisonous advertise that fact, you know, mm -hmm. they have warning colors. 
uh, scientists call it aposematic coloration, warning coloration. So reds and yellows and stuff like that. Fish and plants and snakes, all kinds of things that uh, have poisonous, poisonous species uh, advertise effect, but not with mushrooms. So there's all kinds of reds and yellows in the mushroom world. Really, almost none of those are poisons. The most dangerous mushrooms are either kind of small, drab, brown things or white. Mm. Yeah. And so with the uh, amanitas, the really popular, very safe edibles like the Caesar amanitas are all bright red or yellow or orange. They're beautiful and they're totally safe. Wow. The deadly amanitas are almost all white species, uh, with the with one exception is the death cap, which is kind of a, a chartreuse yellow green, but can be very pale and almost white as well. Yeah. And and the death cap is the one. That's the a heavy hitter. Death cap's the heavy hitter. Yeah. So there's people that get killed every year from eating that. There's lots of people that get poisoned by mushrooms every year for sure, and other stuff. You know, other plants and and contaminated food. There's, I mean, there's people get poisoned all the time, um, but. Uh, when people get poisoned and die from mushrooms, the vast majority of the time it's from amanitas. And so the, the death cap's a big one because a lot of people mistake it for other ones. But there's also uh, the death's angel. Is that the other one? Destroying angel. Destroying yeah. angel. Yeah, yep. I knew it had a vicious name to it. Yeah. So that one messes up, uh, kills a lot of people too. Sure. So the death cap is not native to North America, but came into North America several decades ago and now is very common all up and down both coasts and occurs with a lot of trees that are common on lawns and things like that. So people encounter it quite a bit. A very close relative, it's in the same group of, this, of the genus, are the destroying angels. And those are native. We have white destroying angels in, on the west coast, and we have white destroying angels east of the Rockies. Those are all pretty much live in the forest, so people don't encounter them as much. They look, you know, for all intents and purposes, exactly like a death cap. It's just that they're snow white, and the, the death cap is kind of, you know, slightly yellow-green. Um, but otherwise, they n none of them have a, any sort of off-putting smell that would warn you. They actually taste very good. You know, you can take a little taste and, and get it on your tongue and spit it out. They have a very pleasant taste. So you wouldn't uh, put it in a dish and it's bitter or something and think, uh-oh, something's wrong. You would never even know. They, they taste delicious. Yeah. Now, now, how do these things, how does it work? Like, how, co how come they're so poisonous? Yeah, that's, that's another very good question. So why should they be so poisonous and, and kill, and kill uh, animals? Well, how and why? Yeah. So why are they and how does it work? So uh, within, the geni within the genus uh, Amanita, there's, there's different sort of subgroups. And uh, most of the subgroups of species have no poisons. Um, uh, a couple of the subgroups have poisons that are not deadly. With the group that includes the destroying angels and death caps, there's amanotoxins, and those are the ones that are really deadly. How it works is this compound uh, blocks messenger RNA polymerase enzyme in your, in your cells, and so that enzyme is responsible for transcribing DNA. DNA gets taken from the nucleus in your cells by several steps to get out to where the proteins are going to be made, and that's, you know, that's how everything gets built in your body and how you respond to stimuli and everything. So if you block that most critical step, that most critical enzyme messenger RNA, RNA polymerase, uh, you will shut down you know, all cell division, you will shut down all function of organs, and so um, uh, death will happen. Death doesn't happen because of the toxin, by the way. Death is even more gruesome than that. Uh, emotoxin poisoning, uh, about 6 to 12 to 24 hours after you ingest um, maybe just part of one of these, or maybe everyone in your family consumes a meal with one mushroom in the dish. Everyone actually could be killed. They're extremely poisonous. Wow. And so what happens is you get very, very sick, uh, extreme 
uh, cramping in your stomach and fluids flying out of both ends of you and everything for hours. And then you end up sort of in a coma, like unconscious for hours or like a half day or more in the hospital or wherever you end up. And then after that period of time, all the toxin leaves your body and then you are seemingly recovered and feel completely fine and, and leave the hospital or, or wherever, you, wherever you were bedridden. And then after about two or three days of feeling pretty fine, uh, everyone starts noticing your skin is turning yellow and your eyes are turning yellow because uh, toxins in your blood are building up. Your own toxins are building up and you're getting jaundiced and bilirubin is building up. And, and what's going on is your liver has been destroyed by this a toxin, this mushroom toxin, now you can no longer detoxify all the normal catabolites of your cell processes that your liver and kidneys and these things would take care of for you normally and get, and get rid of that stuff from your body. Well, they don't work anymore because the, the poison from the mushroom has destroyed them. And so now at this stage, if you don't get a liver transplant right away or go on dialysis for the rest of your life, you'll die because you no longer have functioning organs. So, so that's a, a pretty gruesome way to go. There's other mushrooms that just kill you outright, but not the uh, ammonitas. <laughs> they are even more insidious than that. Yeah, and it doesn't take a lot to, to take them it, out. It can be out. a very small amount, yep. Yeah. And um, now there's more and more records kept because people do get poisoned by them every year. You know, it's certainly somewhere people get poisoned by them. So there's better and better records kept and, and monitored which species they ate and how much and stuff like this. What is known is that it's not absolute that you'll die. Some people seem to have more tolerance than others, um, but still it is a uh, 50% death rate from consuming any amount of these. So it's still very high compared to, you know, being shot, with a, being shot in the head with a gun or <laughs> other poisons and stuff, you know. There's, there's a whole sort of uh, continuum of uh, how lethal things are. They're fairly lethal. They're yeah. probably more lethal than most other mushrooms. So why should they have this poison? Nobody knows. Uh, it doesn't seem to um, um, uh, prevent things from eating them, you know, other creatures or whatever, because actually it turns out only mammals are poisoned by this poison. And in fact, not even all, all mammals. Some mammals seemingly, some squirrels and a few other things seemingly can eat them with impunity, believe it or not. So. Um, I study flies that have co-evolved with mushrooms and maybe um, are involved with spore, you know, vectoring and stuff like that. And uh, fly, you know, flies that feed on mushrooms are not poisoned by them and um, other invertebrates like slugs and things in the forest are not poisoned. So nobody knows why this is like the most toxic toxin to humans and, and some other animals. Um, nobody knows. It, the compound probably does something else in the in the mushroom, it just so happens it's really bad for us to get. Nobody knows. So kind of like pharmaceuticals where its main effect is maybe to stop bacteria from growing on it and its side effect is it can yeah. decimate human livers. Yeah, certainly could be. Yeah. Um, so there's another another species in this um, called the Amanita muscara mushroom, yeah. which is, this is the mushroom that at least in pop culture, is very popular because it has. It's the same mushroom that's in like Super Mario Brothers. It's oh the, yeah. The white stalk, the red cap with the white dots on it. Oh yeah, that's the poster child for mushrooms. Right. Everybody <laughs> knows this image, whether or not right. you've actually seen that mushroom. You've seen the image somewhere. Yeah. Now, so now I think I think it was even in Alice in Wonderland. Now in yes. those types of things, it gives them the ability to grow. In both of those situations by eating this mushroom, they can actually grow several times their original size. Yeah, that's cool. Um, is, that, is that possible? Is that based in reality at all? Not really. So Ammonita muscaria, which is super common, and on the West Coast, we do have the red form with the white patches. 
east of the Rockies, the form is usually yellow to yellow-orange, uh, and it can also be cream or even white-colored. It's still the same species. It's really uh, common all around the world. There's other, other there's European Ammonite muscarias, and, and it's actually, so, so the death cap came over here from Europe. It's an invasive species, and we've given back to other parts of the world Ammonite muscaria. It's spread all around the world on other horticultural plants or T timber farms or whatever, it's all over the place. It can, it, it, uh, both of these species of Amanita, they don't rot stuff, they're one of these mycorrhizal types. They grow mm. on the roots of certain types of trees and it turns out they can use a lot of different trees as hosts, so that's why they're spreading all around. So this um, mushroom that's uh, famous in pop culture for causing hallucinations and being mm -hmm. psychedelic or whatever, it does have some psychotropic properties, very weakly so, but it's also fairly poisonous to people, so people ingesting it you know, you will go through sort of a, a sick phase where you're vomiting and everything, which to me is sort of off-putting. There's, if you... off-putting to me as well. Yeah. So people, you know, listening to this that want to find out about, you know, psychedelic mushrooms, or this is not the one I would recommend. There's certainly other much better, less sickening mushrooms out there that you can um, find growing, you know, in nature. But anyways, um, w certainly with some psychedelic mushrooms under a heavy dose you know, the hallucination can be anything ranging from uh, vivid colors to euphoria to feeling like you're shrinking or flying or, I mean, you can have all kinds of very realistic dreams. I don't think with that one anybody's ever had any really super strong hallucinations. Not our North American one. The one that's in Siberia seems to be a lot more psychotropic and, uh, you know, very ancient cultures have used it for mm -hmm. as a psychedelic mushroom to commune with the gods or or for whatever reason but the one in north america doesn't seem to be really very strong uh, as far as a, a psychotrope and again it is um it is somewhat toxic toxic so you really shouldn't pick it and eat it as food um there is um there is in the literature now a lot of people promoting it as a as a safe edible, but you do have to boil it in water mm. for a fair length of time to, to cook out some of the toxins, and then you can fry it up or something like that. You can't simply just uh, cook it in a pan like other mushrooms because you probably will get sick. It's pretty well-known sickening mushroom. Well, so there's a nice little segue because I want to, before we finish, talk about um, the psilocybin mushrooms, which are the extremely psychotropic ones. But it's interesting because the, you know, the, um, the Omnita muscara mushroom is the one, the poster child. And yeah. I think it's because it looks really cool. Um, it's, and it's beautiful. And, yeah. and the psilocybins are not much No, not at all. They're like little brown yeah. little guys. Yeah. And I think because, you know, I think that's really the main, uh, we're talking about marketing again. Yeah. You know, I think that that's kind of what <laughs> happened. And because both Super Mario Brothers and Alice in Wonderland are essentially like acid trips when you, when you mm. really analyze them. Oh, yeah. And so we're talking about a hallucinogenic mushroom. But the real deal, the heavy hitter in this is the psilocybin mushrooms. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about those. Yep, so psilocybin mushrooms, um, those mushrooms do make a living off of rotting stuff. If anyone knows anything about them, they assume you can find them by going into pastures because they grow on dung and, and stuff poop. like that. Yeah, is that and, true? Do they uh, grow on cow patties? Well, the, the most commonly cultivated one, if, if, if anyone's encountered them ever, that you know, someone grew them and sold them to them in a little baggie you know, at a concert or I something. I have absolutely no idea what you're referring yeah, to. I'm, I've heard of stuff like that too. Yeah. So those are more than likely Psilocybe cubensis, and cubensis, as the name implies, comes from the Gulf I Coast and Cuba, mm. and they do grow on dung. And a couple, and a few other psilocybe mushrooms do grow on dung, but most of the, most of the time they just grow rotting stuff in the forest or in wood chips in 
in uh, mulched beds and stuff like that. There's lots and lots of species around the world, lots, hundreds. They're uh, a very successful group of mushrooms, and they produce this uh, weird, bitter alkaloid. And alkaloids are a really interesting group of compounds because um, lots of organisms, plants and fungal, have hit upon this group of these weird ring compounds that are very bitter in nature, and you can turn them into all sorts of different uh, types of compounds, but stuff like cocaine, uh, codeine, nicotine. Mm. So those are from plants, you right. know. And then other things like psilocybin and uh, lysergic acid, diethylamid, LSD, that's mm. from a totally, you know, not closely related fungus to psilocybin, but it's a very uh, similar acting compound on the mind. So these compounds are being heavily studied again you know, only only very recently are are people being allowed in some cases, rare cases, to study them again because you know the summer of love and all of that stuff with sure. hippies really shut down a lot of uh, psychotropic drug research, especially LSD and psilocybin. But recently, some people have been doing some really amazing studies on them to find these things have such powerful control over the mind that surely they can be harnessed to treat people with severe depression or post-traumatic stress disorder or a, a number of other things. And, and in the few studies recently that have been done have been shown uh, amazing results from literally one treatment, you know, one ingestion episode, and people have had a life-altering experience and gotten over all sorts of uh, mental issues, you know, that they were suffering from. So, you know, again, come back in another century or two, I think there'll be lots of medicines made from these things. They're just they're so powerful, but right now we're still dealing with governments being antsy to grant licensing just because, you know, everyone was tripping and the whole, you know, the whole society went cuckoo for a few years because of um, illicit use of some of these drugs. But well, let me get, let me get conspiratorial on you. Sure. So it is documented proof that the CIA experimented with this stuff yes, and, and several, you know, with, it, with LSD specifically. It, it sounds hard to believe, but it's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. And, and is it possible that they realized the extreme power of this because it was also tied into you know remote viewing and, and psychic abilities that it is, is it possible that this particular substance actually is way more powerful and way more constructive uh, than even they want to let to give into the common hand uh, I don't know about that so um all right, well, then that's it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I do know a number of people who are big advocates of use of uh, psychedelic mushrooms and stuff like that, and usually they will stress that it doesn't work the same. I mean, if you're eating a, a plant that has a drug in it or a mushroom that has a drug in it or whatever, you know, that's not like a, you never know the dose every time. You know, it's not like getting a pill where you have a measured amount of the active compound. So, you, so you're never really sure how much you're getting based on the maturity or the size or how much water was in the leaf, the coca leaf or whatever. So, uh, so most, most information that's out there comes from uh, people that have used these things a lot, but it's anecdotal just because it's never exactly the same amount uh, every time. But people that are uh, big advocates of, of um, heavy dose of psych psychotropic mushrooms usually stress something called set and setting. So it won't work on the same person in all situations. You need to be like of the right mind and maybe the right part of the country, the world, you know, and, and, uh, and do this sort of thing. And also not have other confounding drugs in your body like alcohol or other drugs. So a lot of people, I was a, I was a big poo-pooer of reading a lot of these stuff about people uh, taking uh, psychedelic trips. I didn't really believe 
uh, this stuff really could happen. Because like a lot of people, when I was young, you know, at a concert or a party or whatever, you know, you ate a magic mushroom and you smoked weed and you were drinking and stuff. And yeah, there was uproarious laughter and stuff like that. And I just figured that's, that's the extent of it. But um, uh, at the Telluride Mushroom Festival that I've been going to for quite a few years now, there is a lot of discussion of these things and, and other wild mushrooms and stuff there. It's, but it's one of the few forums around the world that discusses psychedelic mushroom use and research and stuff like that. And I talked to several really experienced people and they were talking about, uh, no, this really does work just like you've read, but you, again, it's set in setting. So you need to be taking a fairly heavy dose, but not on any other sorts of drugs. You can't be uh, upset or nervous or anxious about other stuff because whatever is going on in your mind, it can exacerbate it tremendously. But if you're in a good place of mind, uh, it, it can make things that much better. So when the military was researching uh, with LSD in, in a project that and they were calling the drug Jacob's Ladder back when they were studying it, they, as far as I've read, they wanted to develop this drug uh, not so much for mind control of soldiers, but they wanted to uh, uh, have the soldiers be able to take something that would allow them to be more focused and for a longer period of time and to forego uh, needing to eat or do anything for longer periods of time. So maybe a soldier could be in a stressful battle situation for several days straight, literally not needing to eat and be very focused and not need to sleep or anything. Because you can imagine in, in a war zone, that really happens. You, you have a situation where that would be helpful. Well, of course, if you're in a stressful situation where it ex LSD works similar to psilocybin, it exacerbates that. And of course, these soldiers went haywire and attacked each other, were like chewing their own arms off and seeing visions, and of course, were very frightened, and it just made things much worse. So it was a total disaster. The uh, CIA was involved in the discovery of psilocybin mushrooms as well, interestingly enough, uh, when this banker from Citibank in the 50s, Gordon Wasson, who was in a mushroom club, heard about these psychedelic mushrooms being used by Mesoamerican peoples in Mexico for religious purposes. He had the money to travel down there and try to seek them out. And he went down several times and found a shaman to take him in and to take him on one of these hallucinatory, you know, day-long events. And it, of course, he wrote about it. It was like the most incredible thing ever that happened in his life. Um, the government got wind of it. It was published in the Life magazine. He p actually paid Life magazine to publish the story. Government got wind of it. And so talked to him about uh, this guy approached him and said, uh, I would like to go and find out more about this because this is a great thing. This could be a really wonderful wonder drug for the world. So he supposedly was working for some little pharmaceutical company, but he was actually a plant by the CIA as well, believe it or not. And again, this seems really far-fetched and like conspiracy theory stuff, but it's all very well documented. It seems to be totally true. And so they, they uh, attempted to get a hold of magic mushrooms for who, who knows what purpose. Um, fortunately, the the mushrooms are still in the still in nature, and you can still collect them, and you don't have to go to the CIA to get a hold of them. <laughs> well, I do. I, I was disappointed you didn't perpetuate my conspiracy at the beginning <laughs> of this, but I love that you came back around, and <laughs> we are back on the same page. Uh, I agree with 100% of what you said. Um, so let's move on to something a little less gruesome, but really cool. There are certain um, mushrooms that actually can bioluminesce. Yes. Let's talk about this. 
Yes, it's really amazing. And um, it's funny, we, um, the, the summer issue of Fungi Magazine shipping right now in the centerfold. It's very sexy Ooh, centerfold. centerfold. Yeah, there's Ooh, a centerfold. I didn't know you had centerfolds in your magazine. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've been accused of peddling mycoporn, believe it. If you Google, <laughs> I'm not making this up. If you Google the, the, this term, mycoporn, you'll see a mention of me because we have a lot of like really oh. exciting images of like crazy mushrooms. Well, it's Anyways, all reproductive organs, too. Yeah. I mean, by definition, they are. It's porn, yeah. yeah. They, in fact, they're sexual reproduction. Yeah. Reproduction exactly. So the, the mold, by, by the way, the mold that was on your. Uh, on your grandma's again, yeah. mozzarella cheese. That was <laughs> easy, actually not easy. That easy. was not sexual reproduction. That was asexual. Believe it or not. Oh. Yeah. So it's it's a different thing. fungi. I mean, the more you look, the more interesting fungi are. So, totally the, agree. but the bioluminescence. So, uh, the dude that had the the stuff in the centerfold. These were new species that he found. He's he's a famous photographer, Taylor Lockwood. He he takes the greatest, most beautiful photos. He's been in like every magazine. Uh, with mushrooms, and he usually, mo most of the time, has our cover photo. Anyways, Taylor Lockwood, the last couple of years, he's now been working on a book just of bioluminescent fungi. So he's been going literally all over the planet looking for different glow-in-the-dark mushrooms, and crazy. he's been coming up with a lot of uh, crazy things because uh, people know about them, but no one really studies them too much. So uh, he's been finding a lot of, of kooky things. So these, these that are in our magazine, these are uh, the first ever photos ever published of these wow. New Zealand bioluminescent mushrooms, which are pretty cool. So you're probably going to ask, what's the deal and why do they do this? Yeah, what's the deal and why do they do this? Yeah, nobody knows. So, of course... Great, moving on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so there you go. So, of course, everyone suspects, you know, it's probably to attract insects to them at night. They bump into the mushroom or, or pick up the spores or something and carry it off. Well, um, that might be the case in uh, tropical rainforests where there's a lot of really yeah. tiny mushrooms that glow. And there's been some studies just recently showing that that might be the case in rainforests where they don't have like any wind at all. So they might rely on uh, flying creatures to pick up the spores and, mm. and take them away. But in North America, we have several different types of very common bioluminescent mushrooms. And uh, it's been looked at lots and lots. And th that has nothing to do with spore uh, dissemination and no one knows why they do that you know it could be a holdover from a long time ago maybe a lot of groups of mushrooms glowed in the dark uh, or maybe they were poisonous and glowed the dark as a warning I mean no, no one really knows with most of them there's quite a few different groups that glow in the dark and and again everyone's looked at all the obvious things and they they don't they don't know why that is pretty crazy but I mean it's kind of like the stuff you were talking about where there's lots of things about various different animals we don't understand mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you take a step back, or you take a step to the left, and it all comes into focus. Yeah, absolutely. And mycology is a very, very young field, you know, compared to microbiology or zo zoology or, or botany. Those people have been studying birds and plants and stuff for for thousands of years. But fungi, yeah. really, just recently, frankly, last couple hundred years, really studying them very much. So there's there's tons we don't know at all about fungi. But again, people can find them. I mean, they they grow all across North America. You can pretty easily find them. They're not necessarily small out of the way. There's some really great big, real common mushrooms. So people mm. that are into looking for mushrooms, you know, all know about this. And um, they're not necessarily. So first of all, you know, they they glow in the dark. Mm -hmm. uh, they're actually glowing all the time. Right. It's just they're they're not that bright, so you don't see them during the day. So that's another sort of puzzling thing. So it's not like they're glowing at night to attract stuff necessarily because they're also glowing during the day and you can't see them glowing. So um, 
So what's going on? Again, uh, no one really knows. If it's at nighttime, most of them are not glowing so brightly that you necessarily would, would see, even if it's completely dark. Um, a lot of times, if you really want to see how cool they are, you have to bring them into your house into a, a completely dark room and stay in there for quite a while, maybe 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or something so that your eyes adjust to the dark. So I usually tell people, well, if you want to see these things glowing, get the fresh mushrooms and make it like a cheese sandwich or something to take in there so you have <laughs> something to do. And then once your eyes get adjusted, then you can see them and they are glowing quite brilliant, you know, quite brilliant. You could read by them, some of them, believe it or not, they're that bright. But again, wow. you have to let your eyes get really adjusted to the dark. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting, again, bring it back to plants. So, you know, a lot of, you know, flowers aren't made for the human eye. They're made for, you know, bees and, and pollinators mm -hmm. that see in the different spectrum level. Exactly. And so they're, you know, they're, la they're basically a landing pad mm -hmm. to the pollen to yeah. get the pollen out of here and, you know, disseminate it around. Let's get some, you know, the flowers made. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if it works, you know, in a similar way where things that are more tuned to the to those types of spectrums will come and land on it because there is a benefit to insects going onto spores and then taking those spores around, even if it doesn't affect them in a similar way. Uh, it, again, it could. Let's crack it. It, it. it certainly could. And the way things go in nature, it seems like, you know, there's never like one reason why this one thing, you know, everything, every creature has this one thing. They usually you know they already have it coming from their ancestors and now reuse it for other purposes mm -hmm. hair on organisms is a great example so there's hair that's really thick or thin or long or whatever on all different types of animals even insects all insects have hair on them and so on some creatures it's to keep them warm mm -hmm. some it's to um, accentuate certain male or female characteristics to mm -hmm. attract a mate Others, it's, you know, to make them look more ominous and dangerous to, mm -hmm. you know, for territoriality. And for a lot of creatures, it's for sensory, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, and, and hair and birds just turn into feathers. That's what yeah. feathers are. So, um, so for sure, you know, some of the mushrooms glowing probably are attracting insects, but there's been a lot of studies done, and it seems to have no bearing on spreading spores in a lot of different real common groups. So. Wow. You know, unless uh, unless a characteristic is actually detrimental to the organism, oh yeah, why well, would it get weeded out? Yeah, it could. Yeah. It could. I mean, we have a lot of things about us that really don't perform any benefit. But as long as it's not like a, a, a you know, a detraction from us reproducing, then you know, it'll stay around. We have a little nubbin of a tail mm -hmm. that couldn't possibly help us in any way, and we have other structures too that don't seem to do us any benefit. It it did our ancestors a benefit, and you know, maybe in the future, whatever humans evolve into. Who knows, the tail could come back, it could be useful. So it, tails and other things have shrunk and gotten larger and shrunk and gotten larger in all different groups and, you know. Yeah, becomes fashionable at a certain time. Fashionable, Who knows? Sure. why not? Uh, well, now, now, going on this, this incredible thing I just said, there are also lots of fungus, this is amazing. I, I, there's fungus that, that attacks like a, a fruit-bearing plant and then it will replicate the flowers of that plant. It will stop the plant's own flowers from growing Yes. And that you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about it. Oh, that is, this is really This is a cool. good one. This is super cool. So this is something called pseudopollination. Mm. And it's really interesting. Almost nobody has ever studied it or figured stuff out. The, probably the person that, that made the most advances and, like, totally blew everyone away is a lady. Britt Bunyard. From no, uh, def no, definitely not. <laughs> this this uh, lady in Oregon, I'll think of her name in a second, the scientist. She had a couple unbelievable studies with montane flowers. So these are, you know, scrubby plants and bushes that live 
at fairly high altitude in the Rockies, uh, Roy. Her name is uh, uh, Barbara Biddy Roy. So Biddy Roy discovered this. So, you know, just like in Tibet, there's not much moisture, so there's, not, there's no trees, it's just very grassy. You go higher and higher elevation in the mountains anywhere on the planet, it gets drier and colder and mm -hmm. the season's shorter. So plants get more and more reduced. There's cacti and there's scrubby plants and, and, and scrubby bushy things and, and a lot of little flowers and things. They, they dominate the landscape and lichens. So Biddy Roy discovered uh, these two different species of, of, and she's a mycologist, but she was interested in uh, I, I don't know if she was interested in alpine mushrooms or whatever, but she noticed there was these two different species of this one scrubby flower, and someone told her what they were. And one was uh, kind of a hot pink magenta color, and one was a yellow color. And so she was looking at them real closely, and, and after just a couple minutes, noticed the yellow one, the yellow different species. I mean, the foliage looked exactly the same, the leaves and everything. So it, it was a different species. And when she looked really closely at the yellow ones, at the flowers, they weren't flowers. I mean, they looked like flowers, but, but they were not flowers. She's a, a biologist, mm -hmm. she knew. So what the heck was going on? So she studied this plant and started putting two and two together, like where it's like all a magenta population and where some of the yellow ones are. The next year there's more yellow and more yellow. And for some reason, the yellow ones were taking over. So what the heck's going on? She's watching what, what the pollinators are, everything. So this took a long time and the study was just totally earth shattering. What was going on is the plants were all magenta flowered but they get a rust fungus on them. And we have lots and lots of rusts in the environment. Every plant gets different types of rusts. So um, if you have uh, c cedar trees, apple trees, quince, hawthorn, uh, the, those trees produce really large fruit bodies. So you might see one of these rusts. Otherwise, they might just be a spot on a plant. Um, rust nearly wiped out, uh, well, did wipe out the wheat crop in North America a few years back in the 70s. There literally was no wheat. Nobody remembers this now because we're older. Uh, but, you know, the entire wo world's food supply will be in jeopardy the next time this happens in, mm. you know, it's uh, any time now. It could happen. So anyways. Uh, ominous words, man. Yeah, right, watch so out. Yeah. <laughs> Go gluten-free now, you <laughs> yeah. know. Just get used to not in a, in a wheat-free uh, world. So Biddy Roy... Uh, started studying what was going on with these uh, pink flowers and found out that this plant gets a rust fungus that, again, it doesn't make a mushroom or any tall launching pad. It uses the plant and co-opts insects into spreading the spores for them. So when this plant gets uh, parasitized by this fungus, it no longer makes a flower. Uh, but the fungus makes plant hormones that tell a, a part of the plant to start growing like a big stalk. And where this stalk should have leaves, the leaves are reduced in size and form almost like a rosette, you know, like a kind of like a cluster that looks kind of flower-like. And they're bright yellow covered with spores. And it's very enticing to insects. And in fact, it, there's even uh, a sweet, sticky exudate that leaks out. So the pollinating uh, insects and a lot of them even glow in UV. You, you were talking mm, about if you mm. if if we could see what flowers look like, they're actually glowing in a different color that we can't see because they're not made for our eyes. They're made right. for other things. So yeah, these fungi have tapped into everything that it takes to make a really good flower. They figured it out and they they do it better than the plant. So because the insects prefer this fungus form, they flower, do. Right? And yeah. so in her in like the last study she did, which was a few few years ago, she found that where there's a mixed population of the yellow form, which is, again, not even a true flower. It's just this fake flower that produces a sweet, 
exudate and these spores, the yellow ones are more popular and more enticing to the pollinating insects than the real thing. So it's favoring the in infected plants and the infected plants don't make, flower, make real flowers anymore. So this fungus you know, could actually wipe out populations by being really successful at this. Why this hasn't already happened, I don't know. Maybe the plant is probably less tolerant of cold or less mm. drought tolerant or something. There's some other check probably, because it's been going on for millions of years. It didn't just happen. You know, it's not an invasive species. It was always there. Yeah. So anyways, it's a really cool story. And sure enough, uh, some other scientists have, had, have found some fairly similar things with um, a number of different ericaceous plants like blueberries and cranberries and stuff like that. They get a fungus on them that does kind of a similar thing. The uh, fungus causes small little uh, leaf tufts to sprout and they'll glow uh, to, to, to bee eyes, they'll glow in sort of like an ultraviolet color and they look like a flower and they produce spores and, and a sweet exudate and they entice bees and that's how the, the fungus gets its spores spread around. So it's crazy. Yeah. So not only are they good at being a fungus and being a parasite, they're actually better at being a plant, you know, in some ways <laughs> than the plant. <laughs> that's embarrassing. Yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> um, so when you're talking about this stuff's been around for millions of years, let's talk about one last thing here. There are, let's talk about the oldest fungus, which is also coincidentally the largest living organism on the planet, which is, um, this is the Amarilla solidipes. Am I saying Oh, Armillaria. That's your, yeah. Yeah, yeah Armillaria. Uh, yeah, because these infect like old trees and some of these that fruit bearing bodies, you know, are perennial and they grow and. Okay, so. We're talking about two different things? Um, yeah, two or two and or three or five different things but okay well, let's talk about them okay, one at so a time. Arm, so our malaria making a super fungus here man yeah so those are the our malarias uh, got in the news the armillaria solidipes and some of the other armillarias uh, real common to anyone that goes in the woods or the backyard or if you're into picking wild mushrooms for the table they're all across North America they're known as the honey mushrooms and so they make their living by parasitizing trees. In fact, they can spread from one tree to the next. They have um, a very much special type of a mycelium that's kind of like very ropey, almost like shoestrings, really. In fact, it's, it's also called the shoestring fungus. So where you would see the, these ropey forms of the mycelium that are black, they're not white, is maybe if you see a log down in your woods and you rip the bark off underneath the bark you'll see these like black straps and it's like what the heck is that well that's this that's the rhizomorphs of the honey mushrooms that can spread from one tree to the next anyways so when it was discovered uh, people were doing a dna sequence study on honey mushrooms in michigan they found this this one population were totally clonal and the exact same organism as best as they could tell covering an entire woods, like an entire f national forest. So miles across was, as best as anyone could tell, one organism. So this is a microbe that's actually the biggest organism on the planet. That's crazy. And so, you know, the, the scientists, the, uh, the mycologists on the West Coast, of course, are not going to be outdone by us knuckleheads back in the Midwest. No way, man. So they found uh, another honey mushroom that was many times bigger. It was like, I don't know. 20% the size of the whole state of Oregon or something in the forest. It was really, Whoa. really, you know, it covered several mountains and things. It was uh, just thousands, tens of thousands of acres. It was really, really big. So, you know, so what does that mean? Did it, did it spread across the roads or whatever? Well, it'd been growing for a long period of time, I guess, and just filled a whole forest. And, you know, it might be crossed by roads and, and broken in some places, I'm sure, by 
by human activities and building and stuff like that. But um, you can um, figure out how quickly this thing grows, you know, inches a year or something, and then back extrapolate that. Well, if it's like hundreds and thousands of miles across, it only grows, you know, a few inches a year outward from where it started. Obviously, it's been there for a long, long time. And there's some other similar things. If you see like fairy rings on your lawn, you know, that started from one little point. The fungus started growing in the thatch in your lawn and digesting that stuff. And then it got really big and ends up looking like this kind of crescent shape or green ring on your lawn. So it's been there for a long time. Well, if you go out to the Great Plains, these things have been there much, much longer, like mm -hmm. centuries. You can see these fairy rings from, from the sky. Mm. I mean, they're, they're like a mile across in some places. So again, that tells you how long that single organism has been growing there. I mean you know, more than a year or two for sure. It's probably been centuries, this one single thing going. Yeah, and in the honey mushrooms, they can actually, they're perennial, right? Um, so the fungus itself, of course, continues living, and a lot of fungi are like that in the forest. It lives for years and years and years. In the substrate, the, the honey mushroom produces a, a mushroom that people would recognize as a mushroom. You know, there's a stem and a cap and gills underneath. Mm -hmm. So that's not perennial. It, it comes up during a season and is only up for, you know, a few, a couple of weeks or something. Got it. Yeah, so that's not really a perennial fruit body. Like some of these polypores and conchs and things on the sides of a tree that's very tough and woody. They look kind of like a shelf, you know. Mm -hmm. Th many of those are perennial, and they put a new layer of, of reproductive surface on every year. So they get bigger and bigger every year, the, the same mushroom, and they have growth rings like, you know, a tree or anything else. So those are perennial, but the honey mushroom's not. Oh, got it. Okay. I think I confused those two because I know that there's some with growth rings that the mushroom grows. And yeah, and some of them can be super old. There's a photo I, of myself that I use a lot that was taken on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, and I'm standing at the base of, I think, the largest Sitka spruce in the world, and it's... Uh, it's so big around, I think it would probably take like eight or ten people holding hands to reach all the way around it. So, wow. Or maybe more. It's, it's massive. Anyways, this tree, which you know, is, is centuries, many centuries old, uh, has a fungus in it that only grows in really, really old growth forests. It's, uh, the, the common name is the agaricon. It's the Fomatopsis officinalis. And it's perennial, so it gets bigger and bigger every year. There's one over my head. There's one probably about, I don't know, three or four or five stories up above my head. It's, a, it's about half the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And, you know, yeah. this thing puts a, a new layer on that's about as thick as a piece of paper every year. So it's been on the tree centuries. And what you can't see in the photo is there's several more further up the tree. And, of course, the whole center of the tree is probably filled with literally tons of this fungus in this massive tree that looks like a redwood. That's incredible. Yeah. So again, it's you, uh, the, that's another sort of weird thing about fungi. They've always been studied with other microbes because a lot of them are microscopic, but some of them are the biggest organisms on the planet. That's insane. So yeah, that's I mean, it's it's incredible when you think about it on that level. Yeah. So then we're coming to the end here, Doctor. Um, let's talk about your magazine. How can people get a hold of get a hold of you? Get get more information about you? Yeah. So I publish Fungi Magazine which has now been in print for almost 10 years, and we're primarily North American mushrooms, but we have subscribers all over, you know, all over the planet. And uh, most of our writers are in North America, but some of our writers and photographers are outside the planet. Anyways, we cover all things fungal. So we have regular culinary, photography, um, 
medicinal mushroom features, stuff like that, and then other reviews of mushrooms and, and neat photography, essays, poetry, book reviews. I mean, really anything goes, uh, especially like really, really uh, astounding photography. That's sort of what we're all about. Um, how you can get a hold of us is you can, we have our own website, which is fungimag.com, and we have either the most or second most popular mushroom Facebook page where you know you can post photos to get them identified or just talk about mushrooms or just see cool stuff there's you know people post mushrooms all the time whenever it's the season and say you know what is this this is in my yard and literally within seconds you know or a minute maybe at the most if it's the middle of the night someone will chime in and say what it is because everybody's on there just getting geeked out on mushrooms all the time so what's the site because the 60 second response time is great yeah, I know. What, what's the a, site is uh, Fungi Magazine. It's just Fungi Magazine. On the Facebook, Facebook group. Yeah. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah. I'll have links to all this stuff on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have time to stick around for a quick little little bonus episode? Sure. Great. Let's do that. I'm not going anywhere. Oh, <laughs> that is great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Britt Bunyard, for sitting down with me. This is incredible. Thank you very much. Sure. My pleasure. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you want to check out all the bonuses for this episode, go to fascinatingnouns.com. At the bottom of the page, there's links to the Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube. All kinds of great stuff. We've got tons of pictures provided by Britt. Uh, we've got a couple of videos he and I took, um, bonus material. And you can even check out the episodes, past episodes. I promise if you liked this episode, I don't promise, I guarantee you'll like the other episodes. You can check them out on the website. Or if you prefer to have them delivered to your device every single week that we do this, you can check out in iTunes, subscribe there on iTunes, Fascinating Nouns, or on Stitcher. So enjoy that. Enjoy the bonus material because I had fun putting it together for you. And of course, thanks for listening. End of transmission.